So we are going to be talking new series on the biblical covenants, the biblical covenants. And I'm sure that this was a date that you circled on your calendar, the day that you were going to start talking covenants. Covenant talk gets everyone uh, coming from, uh, from out of the woodwork. Uh, but some of you might be here, and it's okay. You can admit it, right? We're uh, participating in a, uh, in a Christian group. You can be honest that you're wondering why it is that Trey, and I say this is Trey, he made me teach this, um, waste, why is he wasting your time studying for four weeks the biblical covenants when you could study anything, right? The Trinity, the uh, person and work of Jesus Christ, uh, the end times, how everything is going to go down. He could explain to you the book of Revelation. Um, but he's taking this time out to talk about biblical covenants, a word that we don't use that often, and even a biblical idea that we don't discuss that often in our churches. So covenants, why bother? But what if I told you that understanding these five covenants and how they work in the storyline of Scripture actually could be the key that unlocks your Bible reading, your personal Bible reading and your Bible reading together with other members of the church and with uh, people that don't know and love Jesus as you're doing evangelism. These covenants are more than just sort of arbitrary flashpoints, uh, high water marks in the biblical story. Actually, that's how the story progresses. So the Bible progresses as a narrative, and it does so through these covenants as we are keyed into, as uh, we have revealed to us more and more details about God's plan to save people in and through Jesus Christ. They're like the Bible's backbone. The narrative structure sort of hangs on that, and you can't make sense without it. Um, this redemptive history, again, the story of God's dealing with his people, progresses, and, uh, and it becomes more and more clear as time goes on. And that means that by grasping these covenants and how they work, we're going to be able to understand how all of our Bibles, no matter if you're reading in Leviticus, like the church that uh, we were at this last week is preaching through, or if you're in Mark, like Brad has been, how we get to Jesus Christ, how we can preach all of the scriptures and understand all of the scriptures as Christian scriptures, right? As centered on the personal work of Christ. Because the thing is, everybody has a way to put the Bible together. Everybody has a way to interpret that story. So we can either have a, a conscious set of interpretive principles, a conscious way that we think the Bible progresses, right? Um, you can think about dispensationalism as a way, uh, more covenant theology uh, way. Again, the details don't matter at this point. But the point is, some of us have a thought-out way that we read the Scriptures, and we try to make sense of how all the Bible sort of comes together to form an organic whole. But even if you don't, you're going to default to having principles, right? So you can't just say, well, I, I don't have uh, biblical theology, which is just the word for uh, the, the hermeneutics, the, the discipline of trying to understand how the whole Bible uh, fits together. Because you do, right? It's kind of like when someone says, I don't have a theology. Well, right then, you're basically having a theology whenever you're saying, I'm not going to uh, waste my time. I'm not going to ply my time in, in having conscious thoughts about who God is, right? Even atheism is a theology because it's saying that God doesn't exist, right? It's a, a doctrine, an understanding of who God is. So what we want to do here is we want to have a conscious system, a conscious uh, set of interpretive principles for how the Bible progresses uh, because we think that the Bible gives them to us. 
so that our interpretation of the Bible isn't just left up to whatever we find to be most edifying for us, whatever we find to be easiest, but we're actually duty-bound by Scripture because God's Word is authoritative to listen to it and discern how it tells us to read itself. So in other words, the Scriptures tell us how to read them. So we don't want to impose ourselves on the text and just lay a template or a Scripture on top of them that don't, that don't actually square with it, but we want to see our way of reading the Bible come up from the scriptures as we submit ourselves to them. So as we think about these biblical covenants, our goal is really one, and that's to think God's thoughts after him. We want to read the Bible like God has revealed to us to read the Bible, and uh, we think that we do that through understanding these biblical covenants. So we're going to be working through five main covenants. Anybody, throw out some covenants. What do you think we're going to talk about? Ark of the Covenant? Sort of. Uh, kind of around that time. What about, what, anybody, any other ideas? What covenants were? Abrahamic Covenant, right? The new one, the best one, right? The Jesus one. What's up? Yes? Mosaic, the Israel one, the old one. It's got the most names. Yep, 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 yep. And then the first one we're going to talk about today. Right, covenant with Adam, covenant with creation. Some of them, you get a bunch of names that are probably more accurate, right? The covenant with creation, covenant with Adams, that kind of thing. But yeah, that's right, you got them. We're going to talk about the covenant with creation, the covenant with Noah, the covenant with Israel, a.k.a. the old covenant, a.k.a. the Mosaic covenant, right? Man, it's got a ton of names. Uh, then the Davidic covenant, probably the forgotten covenant uh, that I think Ryan Troglin is going to talk about. And then the new covenant that Jesus brings in his blood, the, point, the one that Hebrew says is better than all the other covenants, and all these covenants pointed to and are progressing to where Jesus comes and he actually provides the full forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit so all of God's people can know him. We're going to talk about that in about four weeks. I'm going to be back to cap the thing off. So that's what we're going to be doing over the next four weeks. And the hope is that at the end of these four weeks, we're all going to have a deeper appreciation for God's word. And we're going to feel more confident Again, no matter what book of the Bible we're opening it to, more confident as we make the move from whatever text we find ourselves to application in and through Jesus Christ, right? So whenever we're looking at the book of Joshua, we're going to want to see how, okay, where does this sit in the context of the Bible storyline? What covenant are these people under? How does that progress through fulfillment in Jesus Christ, and how is that mediated to us, right? We don't want to just make willy-nilly application because you can get into some wild stuff. You know, okay, I shouldn't eat shellfish then. What a bummer. I was just in New England for a week. That would have been terrible, right? But then you think, okay, well, those laws were fulfilled in Jesus Christ. They've sort of, uh, they've gone past their function in redemptive history, uh, and we're under this new covenant and the law of Christ. So I can eat shellfish, but I can do so with the power of the Holy Spirit, right? Um, so you work through these passages, but we want to do so responsibly because you can even get to Jesus in text irresponsibly, right? You can find Jesus under every rock kind of deal whenever it's, it's there's, there are better ways to do it, ways that we'll talk about. And again, that's going to help us not only benefit more, right? Because when we understand our Bibles better, we're going to love God more, right? Or at least we should, that's the point. But we're also going to be able to help other people love God more, right? We're going to be able to have these insights and not just keep them to ourselves, but give them to other people, right? Hey, I just read this in, in my Bible. I just saw here in the Psalms, I noticed that 
uh, the psalmist is talking about this covenant God made with David, and he seems to be placing a lot on this idea of this Davidic king. What's up with that? And I saw, wow, Jesus calls himself the Davidic king in uh, Matthew 1, or at least the genealogy does, right? So then you're sharing those with other people, and it'll also help you to, again, evangelistically, apologetically, when someone says, oh, so you think homosexuality is wrong. Well, do you also think that it's wrong to have shirts with different kinds of cloths mixed in? And you can understand, okay, that's the old covenant. How does that progress? And those are tools that we hope to be able to provide you with so that you can have answers, right? I was watching, I, this is the second time I've mentioned this show, but we were watching The West Wing the other day. Great show. Uh, we were probably too young to watch it on the first go-through, but as with all people, we have the Netflix. And so they have at flashpoints, it's a Catholic president, that the, the fake president. And there are these times when it comes up, these biblical conundrums, and uh, this lobbying group from the evangelicals comes in, and uh, they'll throw a zinger of like, yeah, well, you don't follow all the laws because you think that, you know, it's fine to... Uh, basically, you pick and choose. Uh, but you can actually have a good answer, unlike the West Wing show. And you can watch the West Wing and say, no, 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 no. If only you understood the covenants better and how they all work out in fulfillment in the gospel, you wouldn't have that error, President Bartlett. So if you want to have those tools, man, keep coming. Uh, that's what it's all about. But without, with those introductory remarks out of the way, let's think about covenants. What kind of covenants are you familiar with? So if I say covenant, what do you think? We don't use the word a ton these days. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Anything else? Other covenants? Presbyterians, okay. Uh, any other like covenants that we enter into on a regular basis? Man, I tell you what. <laughs> Goodness gracious. I didn't know about those folks until I moved in. Wow. Um, yeah, other things, membership, right? When we join here, we sign a church covenant, right? We're promising to do stuff uh, for one another. Yeah, I think marriage, um, yeah, church membership, those awful HOAs. Um, yeah, so you get the idea. You know the general gist. But we don't talk about covenants a lot, right? Um, and we're gonna, we'll use this sort of standardized definition as we go through. It comes from a book by Tom Schreiner, just called Covenants. There's some subtitle, but I don't have it on me. But it's just called Covenants. It's in, uh, I'll bring it, or I'll make Trey bring it. Um, it is a little green book, and it is so, so short and so, so simple and clear. Uh, and it just walks through these, these covenants that we're going to go through and explains what, you know, what came before them and what came after them and how they all fit together as a whole. It's incredible. But he defines a covenant like this. So this is our definition. A covenant is a chosen relationship in which two parties make binding promises to each other. Say that one more time. A covenant is a chosen relationship in which two parties make binding promises to each other. So let's take that definition into three parts. So first, a covenant is a relationship. A covenant is a relationship. So a covenant differs from a contract in this way. Right? Contracts may contain promises and have obligations, but they're not personal like covenants are, right? They're transactional, merely transactional, whereas covenants are in a relational context. Again, think of marriage. Second, a covenant is a chosen or elected relationship, a chosen or elected relationship. So 
unlike my marriage to my wife, Lindsay, I'm not in covenant with John and Conrad, my two sons, right? Uh, we didn't enter into this agreement. It happened naturally. And covenants, again, are agreed upon relationships. We are uh, in an agreed upon, elected relationship. We both chose to enter it and to take on the promises and obligations thereof. So it's a chosen, elected relationship. Third, covenants include binding promises and responsibilities. Binding promises and responsibilities. So again, in a marriage covenant, a husband and a wife are making promises to one another to remain faithful, to care for one another. And they're taking on responsibilities for one another. And you can think of it like this. Covenants are mutual, right? They're two-way streets. Both parties are promising to do something in this covenant relationship. And these covenants obligate each party to keep their end of the arrangement, to keep their end of the bargain. Now, before we turn into our first covenant, the covenant with creation, two things we need to keep in mind, two things. First, even though covenants do involve two parties, multiple parties, they don't necessarily involve equal parties, right? That will go without saying as we think about God making covenants with sinful people, right? Or making covenants with people in general, right? Because God is God and we are not. He is infinite. We are finite. And so he can still make these covenants, but they're going to be asymmetrical. Um, And second, we need to avoid the tendency to, in these discussions, sort of lazily categorize covenants as either being conditional or unconditional. If you aren't familiar with that debate, praise God, right? Don't worry about it. All you need to know is that there are obligations that humans have in these covenants that God makes, and that God obviously always keeps his side of the covenant, and as we'll see as we progress, that in so many wonderful ways, God also keeps our end of the bargain as well, right? He's going to satisfy all of his demands, all of his requirements, whenever he sends Jesus to, to live the life that Adam failed to live, that Noah, Moses, David, right? All of us, Israel, failed to live, and he's going to fulfill the terms of that covenant, and then by the power of the Spirit, enable us to keep our end of the bargain as well. So with all of that in mind, any questions preliminarily I, a, I was reticent to even try to say that word out loud. Preliminarily. Any questions? Nope. All right. The covenant with creation. The Adamic covenant. Um, covenant with creation, probably best. I will stick with that. Covenant of creation. This obviously first covenant. And it begins actually not with a covenant, right? But with. God. So we read in Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God. Right? Not in the beginning, God was created. Not in the beginning, uh, God was formed. But in the beginning, God. He always existed. He always will exist. And he decided to create, not out of any sense of lack, any uh, need to self-actualize. But as we thought about a little bit a couple of weeks ago with God's love for himself, He decided to create out of an overflow of his own love for himself and out of a desire to see him glorified in the worship of his creation. He decided to create. And the most important thing, the most important people, right, he created were Adam and Eve, man and woman. And we know that they're the most important. Why? 
What, what in the Bible clues us into the fact that they are the most important of all of God's creation? Yeah, exactly. We read in Genesis 1, 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Right, so he created and allowed Adam to name all of these animals, right? All of the, the, he created plants and everything that we know today in the created order. But there was only one thing, only one, uh, one person, and then later two people that God said, these people are created in my image, and that is human beings. So what does that mean? What does it mean to be created in the image of God? Um, there's a lot that we could say, but it has at least two huge implications, one way more important than the other. So the first, it is true that being created in God's image provides and imbues us with a certain amount of dignity, right? It sets us above the creatures, right? That's why people are more important than animals, because God created people in his image, and thus they have an inherent dignity, right? Some like to locate the importance of being created in the image of God and what we can do. Uh, that obviously has limitations. If you say, for instance, uh, that um, the ability to think and to reason is what makes us made in God's image. Well, what happens if someone is mentally impaired, either through birth or for an accident? Well, then you're saying de facto they're not as image, right? But that's not correct. What is more important is not what we do. Image is more pertinent to who we are, right? We don't do image stuff as much as we are image people by birth, all of us. And that's the second thing. Uh, being created in the image of God means we are created for and in a special relationship to God. God created human beings to mirror or image him by ruling the earth and subduing it, doing God's work under his loving authority. So being created in God's image uh, was initially uh, meant, to be, uh, meant to create us as representatives of him to testify to his goodness, to his glory by worshiping him and by obeying him by loving him, right? We were created to worship him alone, and it was our job under his rule to testify to that greatness. Now, if you read through Genesis 1 through 3, which I trust many, if not all of you have, you won't actually see the word covenant translated anywhere, all right? And if you know the Hebrew, it's not going to help you out either because it's also not there in Hebrew. So what gives? Why are we calling this the first covenant, the covenant with creation? Well, the Bible tells us to. So you turn to uh, the book of Hosea, Hosea 6, 7. It says that Israel was an unfaithful covenant partner just like Adam. So it compares Israel's failure to keep covenant with Adam's failure to keep covenant, right? The Bible seems to be implying that there is this covenant arrangement that God made with Adam in the garden. And one, obviously, that we'll talk about he failed to keep. Besides, as we look at this, all of the elements of the covenant are there. There are two parties, God and then Adam and Eve, the first people. There are promises and requirements, right? Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil or you will surely die. Genesis 2.17 or 3.3. And actually, as we flash forward to the New Testament, you have uh, Romans 5, 12 through 19, 1 Corinthians 15, 21, which sets up this parallel between Jesus as Faithful covenant head, faithful covenant representative, right? Faithful covenant team captain, as opposed to Adam, 
unfaithful covenant team captain, unfaithful covenant representative, unfaithful covenant head, right? Uh, we are all naturally in Adam, but to be saved, we need to be united to Christ and be placed in Christ. And uh, as, we, as we go back to the Genesis text, you see even more the conditionality in this covenant. So it's essentially that God is saying this, Adam and Eve, if you obey my commands, you will experience blessing. If you disobey, you will experience curse, right? There's, there's conditions. And as you might know from the Bible, in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve disobey. Really, this whole chapter in, in Genesis chapter 3 explains what's wrong with all of us and with the world around us. Adam totally blew it as this covenant partner with God and as the representative uh, of all humanity because he chose himself over God, right? That's essentially what sin is, is when we turn away from God and we turn inward to ourselves or to other things. And and even whenever we're sort of worshiping other stuff, it's really just a highfalutin way to worship ourselves, right? Whenever you chase it down uh, to the center. And the issue, again, whenever we read this text, isn't the fruit, right? It seems really trivial if, the, if it's just he chose the wrong fruit, right? Well, he ate the, you know, the apple instead of the pear or whatever, right? We're not told exactly what the fruit is. But again, the issue is the choosing to live for himself, to be autonomous instead of living under the authority of God, loving and being satisfied in God most. He wanted to be satisfied in himself most. He wanted to make much of him instead of making much of God. Essentially, what you had here were image bearers who were refusing to image, right? You had people who were created to mirror the greatness and the glory of God, and instead, they sort of inverted the mirror to, to mirror themselves, to make much of themselves. And again, that is what the Bible calls sin. Everything is downhill from there, right? Everything is downhill from there. God pronounces in Genesis 3 physical curses like pain and childbirth, uh, that work is uh, going to be laborsome and hard, right? And there are spiritual curses as well, right? Spiritual death spreads from this first sin so that now everyone, us included, that's born, right, inherit, inherit, inherit Adam's guilt before God, that we deserve condemnation because of our status as guilty, and our corruption, that all of us are conceived in sin, and all of us, None of us, I should say, are, have to be taught to be sinners, right? Have to be taught to rebel against God, right? You probably have brothers and sisters or children of your own, and you know that is abundantly the case, right? That's natural. It flows out of us. We're not good people by birth. We're actually bad people because we've all rebelled, just like Adam did. The covenant of creation affects every single one of us, regardless if you think so or not, right? Even if you're here and you don't identify yourself as a Christian, the Bible is saying you are included in Adam, right? When Adam failed, you failed. And if you think, wow, uh, well, I wish I'd had a chance to, to, to do it for myself, I probably would have done better, you wouldn't have, right? You wouldn't have. Adam was in the perfect conditions and he failed. What would make you think, what would make me think that I would do any better, Right? We all were created to image God, and we've all refused to. We've all turned away from God. We've all decided to rule ourselves. We've decided to, to believe and to, to think that we can be more satisfied in ourselves than being satisfied in the one who is abundant life in and of himself. And because God is worthy of all praise, because he deserves it and demands it because of who he is, how good he is, 
then he hovers over us, his human beings, in rebellion against him in wrath, right, in anger. He must punish sin because he's good and we are not. But whenever you read Genesis 3, just, just sticks out here, Genesis 3.15. So in the, in the midst of all these curses, God says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. You're like, what in the world does that mean? It's kind of cryptic. But really, that in seed form is going to be what sprouts into the great gospel of Jesus Christ, right? God is going to send someone else, a new Adam, a better Adam, to reverse all of the stuff that happened from Adam's disobedience. Jesus obeys perfectly where Adam failed, where we failed, where we were called to obey God perfectly, where we were called to love him with all of our hearts, minds, souls, and strength. Jesus did that, and he did that in our place. And then that perfect obedience didn't bring him directly to the throne room of God. Right First, it took him to the cross because Jesus not only lived the perfect life that we were required to but couldn't, but he died in the place of sinners, taking that wrath that we deserve on himself, taking away our sins, removing them as far as the east is from the west, and then rising from the dead, right? Proving that he not only defeated death and sin, but also that that sacrifice that he made, that propitiation, that wrath-atoning sacrifice that he made was acceptable to God. And now, if any of us repent of our sins and trust in Christ, we can have salvation. We can have eternal life, the forgiveness of sins. We can be restored to our original purpose, which is to glorify God by enjoying him forever, to glory in the Lord, and to have full and abundant joy forever and ever. We start in Adam, right, in this busted covenant with creation that Adam failed, but God made a remedy to bring us back to himself in and through the Lord Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. We are all born in Adam. That's the bad news. And he blew it, and we've all blown it. But the Bible says that we can be born again, and we can be united to Jesus, the new, the better, the second Adam, who brings a better covenant, which we're going to get to in a couple of weeks. That's the covenant with creation. Created in God's image, we failed. God promises to make a people for himself out of this mass of fallen humanity. Any questions? Any questions about that? Implications thereof? Speaking of covenant, you guys aren't keeping up your side of the arrangement that we entered into. Of course, I also didn't invite you into it. I just sort of flopped it on you. So I guess maybe it's not. Maybe it was more of a contract. Um, any questions? I wanted to wait one more second because it would have been just a little awkward. There we go. All right, we've, we went through the awkward phase, and you didn't relent even then. So we will push forward. To the covenant with Noah. Who had books about Noah's ark or grew up singing songs about Noah's ark as a kid? Who had it, like, painted on their walls in their nursery or in the church they grew up's nursery, right? Do you ever think about how kind of messed up that is whenever you read the story? Yeah, oh, I mean, it's a wonderful story of God's grace, don't get me wrong, but it also begins with the story of God in his just wrath wiping out all of humanity except for, like, this one family, you know? Um, it's just a, it's a, little, it's a little wild that that's what we choose to commemorate, but hey, 
um, you know, it's an important story. And it's an important story as we think about God's covenant with Noah that he makes as the Bible goes along one more uh, little bit here. So as we get to post-Genesis 3 and before the Noah steps on the scene, we see the effects of sin right away, right? They're apparent. Cain murders his brother Abel in Genesis 4. And then in Genesis 6, 1 through 4, you have some guys that are called the sons of God, and they're with some ladies, and they're doing some wild stuff. And whatever it is that's going on, as cryptic as it is, whatever's going on, it ain't good, okay? Um, it's, it's not good times. Sin is, is just rifling through humanity, and it is turning everyone uh, wicked, right? We, we, have, we are now sick with a disease of the heart that extends to everything that we do, right? People are acting crazy. They're wilding out because they are wild at their hearts, right? They are bad people, and now they're doing bad things, right? That's what sin does. It corrupts every bit of us. Moses, the author of Genesis, when he gets to Genesis 6-5, he sums it up like this. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. So let me read that back to you with some emphasis. The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth. Yeah. That every intention, every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil. And just in case you didn't get the point, continually, everything about these people was corrupted, right? They were wicked because Adam sinned and sin entered the world. And now we're all conceived in sin, right? We are naturally at enmity with God. And so in verse 7, God promises to judge the earth by sending a flood. And as he says, blotting out every living thing from under the sun, right? And, and that was, again, just and good for God to do, right? God didn't have to continue his saving purposes. God could have wiped out all of humanity and could have been just in doing so. But we see in this verse, in these verses, God showing grace to a man named Noah. It says that Noah found favor with the Lord. Why do you think that Noah found favor with the Lord? Why Noah? Good dude. Just the best, number one. He was the only one who his, the thoughts of his heart weren't always evil only forever. Right, I see some people shaking their head. No, no, Noah was included in that, right? Noah didn't somehow escape the depravity of his own heart to pull himself up by his bootstraps and be the one righteous dude uh, in all the land. No, God showed him favor, right? God moved towards him as a sinner and decided to continue his purposes of salvation for the, the world through this guy, not because he was better, uh, but because God chose to use him. And that's, again, in some ways, a, a picture of our salvation, that it's not anything in us that compels God's love to love us, right? It's October, so it's a great time to quote uh, a Luther uh, a quote or paraphrase it because I can't quote it straight up. But, you know, Luther talks about how God doesn't find what's lovely in us and is attracted to us. He creates what's lovely in us and moves towards us based on his own initiative, Right, it's nothing in us. It's what God does. It's who God is. Now, turn to Genesis 9. 
If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do. Anybody listen to David Platt ever? You ever heard David Platt preach? He says that every time that he preaches. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do. It always sounds like he's going to go on like a secret mission for the Lord. And he probably is. Uh, but yeah, turn to Genesis 9. So the flood waters come and gone. Noah and his family step off the boat. Everything starts over, right? All the animals come off. In fact, Noah is presented like another Adam figure. So you have God telling Noah to be fruitful and multiply in verse 1, which is exactly what God told Adam to do in Genesis chapter 1, verses 22 and 28. So the author here, Moses, is trying to set up this parallel between Adam at creation and this kind of new creation with Noah. God intends Noah as someone created in his image to do what Adam was supposed to do, but he failed. And we're going to see that even though Noah is a kind of second Adam or another Adam, he is not the last Adam because we'll get after the end of this covenant, uh, Noah gets hammered, right? And he's naked in his tent and he is showing that he's just as sinful as anybody else. So he's not going to be the one to reverse the curse. He's not going to be the Genesis 3.15 seed of the woman that's going to come and be the Messiah and save uh, a, a people for God, right? That's going to be Jesus. Uh, it's not going to be Noah. But the covenant that God makes with Noah, uh, particularly in Genesis 9, 8 through 17, lays the foundation for the redemption that God is going to work in and through Jesus Christ. So just look at verse 11 there. God says to Noah, I will establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. So we have here the promise that what God just did, he's not going to do again until, of course, the final judgment. And he's not saying that, well, I'm not going to destroy anything through water, but I'm no promises about fire, right? No promise about asteroid strike. It's, it's a blanket promise to not repeat the wiping out of all humanity uh, for their wickedness in the way that he just did in the flood. And we know that this covenant is not just for Noah because in verse 9, we see that he's going to establish this covenant. He says, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. And again, if you're paying attention, you know that it's just Noah and his offspring around. So that would be for humanity in perpetuity. Um, God is promising to never destroy the earth again. That, again, doesn't mean that God is going to save every person without distinction. So this isn't a redemptive covenant. He's not entering into uh, a covenant with humanity in a kind of universalist way where everyone's going to be cool with God at the end. But what he is promising to do is to continue his plan of salvation, to preserve humanity uh, so that he is able to uh, in history act to uh, accomplish salvation and to apply it. You can't save human beings who don't exist, in other words. Instead of, of calling this covenant the covenant with Noah, we could call it the covenant of preservation because that's what God's doing. He's preserving the world so that a Messiah can come into that world and accomplish salvation. The earth is going to be like a platform, like a, a stage where redemption is going to be set, where redemption is going to be accomplished. Human beings are going to be able to continue to live and to work and to play while God executes his plan of salvation. Theologically, we'd call this a common grace 
covenant, right? You have this idea of God's special grace that he shows to his people in Christ and saving them from their sins. And then there's a sense in which God still loves his rebellious uh, creatures, right? He sends the rain on the just and the unjust alike. He gives us good gifts of, of family and of marriage and of sports and all kinds of things that his creatures, uh, we as sinful people, even whenever we're not, uh, we haven't repented of our sins and trusted in Christ, we haven't believed the gospel, enjoy and can draw pleasure out of. And that's a way that God shows care for, his, uh, for people that he's created in his image that don't love him back. Um, this is a common grace covenant. It's a, it's a gracious gift of physical life to people who remain in rebellion against him. And in this protection of life, we see in Genesis 9, 6, the creation of this institution that is going to protect image bearers for the purpose of them being able to have the opportunity to hear the gospel and be saved. We see in, in Genesis 9, 6, uh, really in 5 as well, and for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man, from his fellow man, I will require reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. Here in seed form, you have the institution of civil government. You have a, a system put in place, again, just in seed form here, where there is going to be this institution under the authority of God that is going to protect human life and promote human flourishing, Again, not in a way that leads to salvation, but in a way that when good government works the way it should, provides opportunities for human flourishing, and the biggest opportunity for human flourishing is the opportunity to hear the gospel. You're not going to see a treatise on democracy or states' right. There's no Locke. There's no Descartes here. But you do see, again, the fundamental purpose behind civil authorities. Government is supposed to protect life so people can hear the gospel and be saved. Uh, and it protects life even to the point of capital punishment uh, because life is valuable. Now, as we think about capital punishment, it's fraught, right? Because, biblically speaking, capital punishment is, um, is obviously here. Um, now, it gets sticky whenever you talk about the application of capital punishment in a fallen society, right? Uh, so it's one thing to think, yes, in theory, it's good. But then how do we do that justly, which is a whole thing? Um, but capital punishment, in theory, is a biblical thing. And again, why it's important and why it's good, even though it's tragic, is because it says that life you took was valuable, right? It upholds the value of the person whose life was taken. We want governments who value life. We want governments who use their authority to protect the vulnerable and to protect the oppressed, right? To protect the widow and the orphan, the unborn and the ethnic minority, right? And, 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 right? It doesn't have to be one or the other. We want every single person to have an opportunity to hear the gospel from someone, from one of us, right? From another gospel preaching church with Christians in, uh, in Fayetteville and abroad. But that's hard to do when you're being aborted or gunned down in the streets, right? We as people as citizens of the United States have a responsibility to work for justice, to work for good, not because in so doing we bring the kingdom of God, but we want to see people flourishing. We want to see life protected so that God is honored, of course, and so that those people have the opportunity uh, to hear the gospel and be saved. 
Uh, the gospel, again, isn't tied to or dependent to the government, right? Separating of church and state is a good thing. Uh, but a just government is a good gift to people and God's people in particular uh, as we have the opportunities to minister and to, uh, to do good. And God, as he often does, seals this covenant with a covenant sign. The covenant sign, right? It would be circumcision, uh, Sabbath coming up. Ultimately, we'll get to baptism uh, and the Lord's Supper, uh, signifying you have the Holy Spirit, which is the ultimate sign of the new covenant. And this time, it's a rainbow. So look at uh, 9, 12 through 17. 9, 12 through 17. Uh, in 13, God says, I've set my bow in the cloud, and it will be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. So again, you see that it's not just God and Noah, but it's God and the earth. And this bow, right, a bow would be, we don't think we normally think about this when we think rainbows. Uh, we think pots of gold and the like, but the bow is obviously a weapon, and in the ancient times, it was a symbol of war so that a bow pointed down to humanity would represent the threat of divine judgment. But where do rainbows point? Where do rainbows point? Ah, they point up, right? They don't, is there, is there, you guys are confused. Have you ever seen a down pointing? Uh, if you see a, a rainbow pointing down, you got maybe that's something you report to the elders, I guess. Um, but yeah, it's pointed up, right? Um, and what's, what's, what's the point? It, it points up towards the heavens because God is saying, in effect, that if this promise to preserve the world until the end of time, until the, the, the day, the judgment day, the last day, fails, then judgment's going to fall on him. We're going to see something similar whenever Trey and or Ryan or whoever talks about the covenant with Abraham. We're going to see God obligating himself promising to take the penalty which is going gonna, is gonna to set up right the coming of Jesus as obedient son, but also as sacrifice, as penalty bearer. The rainbow is a reminder to God's people or to the, to the people, to uh, Noah and his family, of God's covenant faithfulness. He's going to do what he says. He desires to do so, and he is able to keep every single promise that he makes, which again, we're going to see as he continues his saving purposes. He's not going to fail, right? Humans fail. His covenant partners fail, uh, but he is going to bring about the redemption that he has planned, that he's promised, and he planned from all eternity to do so. God makes this covenant with Noah to never destroy the earth again, and in so doing, sets the stage for everything else we're going to see as we walk through the biblical storylines, we walk through the narrative of God's glorious act of salvation accomplished in history. Again, he's not promising to save every single person, but he is promising to continue his gospel purpose for fallen image bearers, right? So the story is going to continue, uh, and ultimately is going to continue all the way through when Jesus, the eternal second person of the Trinity, takes on flesh to be the high priest of all those who repent and trust in him. Any questions? No questions? If I'm squinting, it's got on my glasses. I dropped them over here, so I'm not scowling. Any questions at all? No questions about the the covenants, creation, and Noah. You guys like Adamic and Noahic covenants? I went with the covenant with. It's a little bit easier. Nothing. Anybody seen the movie Noah? Is it kind of like that? No, I haven't seen it. Um, 
There was a good podcast on these texts recently. It's called Bible Talk. Nine Marks Bible Talk. A couple of friends of mine uh, hosted with one of my seminary professors from Louisville. Really good, talking through these details in ways that we wouldn't obviously have time to today. Very good, Bible Talk. Get the Bible Talk and get the covenants with Tom Schreiner and you'll be in a good spot. All right, uh, let me pray and then you are dismissed to your discussion groups. Thanks, guys. Let me pray. God, we thank you that even though we rebelled against you, you have sent Jesus to reverse uh, the curse that Adam brought in his sin and to provide salvation. Uh, And we thank you for the power of your spirit that gives us new hearts, new affections, and the ability to uh, understand our sin and run from it and embrace Jesus in faith. We thank you for uniting us to Jesus so that whatever uh, is his is ours, so that his life is ours, his death and resurrection is ours. And that he took our sin and our shame on himself and, and has done away with it forever. God, we ask that you would help us now as we turn to discuss these things and as we turn ultimately to corporate worship, that you would help us to worship you in spirit and in truth and to give you the glory that you are due with our lives and as our lives together as a church. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.